Welcome to this fourth in our series of COVID-19 podcasts. The topic of this podcast is mental health and well-being following the COVID-19 outbreak and the lockdown that's followed. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Bonnie Kate Dewar and Dr. Jessica Fish, both who form part of our scientific advisory panel. So I'm especially delighted to welcome them to this particular podcast. Um, our scientific advisory panel consists of experts in a wide range of disciplines from neurology and immunology through to um, psychology, neuropsychiatry. But in the case of Jess and Bonnie Kate, um, their specialties are psychology and neuropsychology. So welcome to you both. Good to see you, Eva. Good, thank you. Um, Bonnie, Kate and Jess, would you like to say uh, a few words about who you are, what you do and any work that you've been involved in relating to the current COVID-19 uh, outbreak? Perhaps Jess, if you want to go first. Sure. Uh, so I'm a clinical psychologist and I work four days a week on the, as a lecturer on the clinical psychology training programme at the University of Glasgow. Um, so the team um, up here in Glasgow have been working really, really hard to um, try to uh, continue adapt the training program so that we can continue to provide good training for clinical psychologists so that they can hopefully graduate on time and then go into the workforce in a planned way which is um, obviously really important at the moment because of the likely mental health impacts of the current situation and our trainees also um, they are uh, students at the university but they also are continually on placement at least three days a week um, working in mental health services so um, there's been lots of work going in to adapt that um, and I also work one day a week for St George's Hospital in London, where I have a research role in the Department of Clinical Neuropsychology and Clinical Health Psychology. And my colleagues there are um, obviously working a lot of them on the front line in, um, in the, at the hospitals that form part of St George's Trust, um, trying to maintain some of the essential services and also um, doing really impressive new work in developing services for staff support. Um, and I can't really unfortunately contribute directly to that work, but my role there is more involved in um, disseminating uh, the that, that great clinical work that's going on. So with the, our, our ongoing research projects. Oh, thanks, Joss. Um, Bonnie Kate. Um, well, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and I'm in private practice. I've got um, rooms in central London. So um, as yet, I haven't been directly involved in any sort of work or clinical work or research um, around the COVID um, pandemic. But what I am looking carefully at is that the International Neuropsychology Society is setting up an, a special interest group. So this idea of having sort of an international response to how to actually, you know, diagnose and then rehabilitate and, and support people who have these sort of, you know, neurological or neuropsychological consequences following COVID-19. Um, and then in the UK, um, with the society and with Jess and other colleagues, looking at how we can actually then also sort of provide support, information, signposting for people who unfortunately may have, very, you know, the long term, uh, longer term consequences of, of this infection. Mm. Um, have um, either of you worked with many encephalitis patients and what did that work involve? So, uh, I think we've both worked with lots of people with encephalitis and um, and where I started speaking first, but there might be some overlap in the in kind of what Bonnie Kate and I have to say here. Um, but so yeah, we've done lots of work with people who have been affected by encephalitis, either themselves or a family member, mainly in a rehabilitation context, where we would start out by conducting a really thorough assessment, trying to see how the, the 
consequences of the encephalitis have impacted that person, the way they, um, their thinking skills, the way they feel about themselves and how it's impacted on their, the kind of roles that are important to them and how it's impacted on families more broadly and work, things like that. Um, and some of the particularly sort of specialist work that I've been involved with has been helping people to develop um, really good um, cognitive strategies to compensate for particularly the memory difficulties that can result from encephalitis. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of um, the main summary. Okay, and, and just you're right. I mean, you know, both as in our, in our clinical roles, we've, we've done similar work with people with encephalitis. encephalitis. So, I mean, in, in the past, I've um, been very fortunate to work with the MRC in Cambridge, where Jess, we first met. Um, so I had the great pleasure and um, privilege of working with Professor Barbara Wilson, where we were doing some research into um, memory rehabilitation. And I did work with um, a specific group of people with encephalitis. From there, um, you know, I've also done some research into how to specifically train people using compensatory memory supports following encephalitis. And that very much informs sort of the ongoing clinical practice where I see individuals for not just assessment, but then rehabilitation tailored to what their specific needs are. And I think following from that, and Jess, I'm sure you would agree, is looking at how someone adjusts to the cognitive and behavioral and emotional changes um, following encephalitis to sort of rebuild or, or sort of reestablish the sense of identity. Um, and I think, you know, it's, you know, it's a very individual, it's very rewarding work. And I think it's allowed, you know, um, personally to be very creative in, in what you can offer, whether working with someone who has had um, a loss of their semantic memory, their memory of people, the memory of faces, um, and the memory of remote, you know, loss of remote memories in their past and how to really rebuild that to sort of, you know, help them progress and better understand who they are now. Well, I mean, I've, I've worked with you both for quite some time now. I know that you do amazing work and, and I know how very grateful uh, the many patients that have, have gone through each of your practices are. Um, we're obviously talking during an unprecedented uh, moment in our lifetimes. Um, how have you and your colleagues been coping? Um, well, I mean, I think I've been coping mainly by trying to practice what I preach when um, helping people to develop co cognitive strategies. I've been planning everything with, in much more detail than <laughs> I usually do. So I've got a very long to-do list for work. And when I'm sitting here at this computer, I go by that to-do list. And when I'm sitting in a different part of my living room or elsewhere in my flat, I follow a different sort of to-do list. I'm really trying, what I'm trying to get across by saying that is thinking about, I'm trying to think about, um, you know, how kind of anxiety provoking and how different this um, period of time is and trying to make sure that I've got a kind of, that I um, just keep well and make sure that I'm, although I've got lots of work to do, that I'm not overly focusing, focusing on that and I'm doing plenty of things that I enjoy and that keep me connected with my friends and family and things like that. And I think most of the people that I both work with and, you know, in my sort of broader social circus, circles are, are taking the same sort of approach, just trying to take each day as it comes and control what we can and not be too preoccupied with the things that we don't have control over. Um, again, you know, fairly similar, but I, I think, you know, to acknowledge that first initial sort of flurry of activity that was very much driven, anxiety driven, both on a personal and professional level about sort of, you know, you know, we'll talk about this in a moment, the rapid change in how I actually run my clinical practice, what I'm able to offer you know, fueled by sort of, you know, financial, you know, personal financial concerns, will I be able to sort of, you know, buy food to sort of feed the family? 
um, you know, so almost spurring an over, overactive kind of week, but then also very much the real anxiety of, you know, my the health of my family and friends, will I, you know, be at risk for other people, those concerns. So I think that sort of, there were, I did have a very, you know, a couple of weeks where it was extremely stressful, extremely anxious, but I think in time, you know, taking that structured approach, beginning to sort of recognise, you know, what, what, what actually am I worried about and how much control I have over that. Um, and from there, you know, it's very much about sort of finding a balance and finding what helps. So exercise, you know, cycling, um, meditation, hugs, chocolate, you know, these sorts of things and connecting. And I think that that's sort of both, both personally with family and friends, but professionally as well, in some ways, I've had almost more contact with colleagues, um, you know, via, via Zoom sort of, you know, peer support meetings, both clinically and some of the medical legal work I do. And it's been really useful just even if the conversation sort of tends to the personal sometimes then gets back on track with work, it's really been useful to connect in, to, to, to maintain those connections. And I think, I think actually strengthen some of those connections with colleagues. Well, I love that, hugs and chocolates, right? And we're gonna come, <laughs> we're gonna come back to the cycling for sure. Um, how have your working days changed during the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, well, so I think I feel like I'm in quite an unusual position in some ways in that my working days haven't changed very much except for the format in which I've been working. So I sit here and um, work from my um, home computer um, and do all the things that I would have done in my office otherwise. Um, but the sort of tea and coffee breaks are probably more frequent than <laughs> chats. So I've been more productive, I think, in some ways. Um, I think this is similar for a lot of my university colleagues, although I'm, uh, it's more complicated for people who've got caring responsibilities and things, obviously. Um, but I think uh, life has changed a lot more for the clinical colleagues that I have at, in, at St George's. Mm, thank you. Bonnie Kate. Okay. So I think that work has in some ways changed. I mean, as my you know, running my own business, I did have days working at home and I needed those almost as a buffer with the clinical face-to-face -face work. But it's been really interesting, the challenge to switch from face-to-face -face therapy work, rehabilitation sessions, and in, in, importantly, you know, clinical psychometric assessments to doing that from face-to-face -to, -face to what we can do um, via Zoom, via Skype, tele, via phone. And I think it's been really, you know, interesting to see the creativity and the, 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 the creative problem solving that clinicians across, colleagues across the world have said, okay, this is the situation we're in, what can we do and how do we do it? So I have moved to video tele-neuropsychology for both um, support sessions, rehab sessions and assessments, which is challenging and extremely exhausting. Um, just, I think, learning the new way of doing things and something about the technology but yet I'm confident that it works. I mean, I, I, there are lots of webinars, I've looked at the research, so it's not just winging it, it's actually sort of going forward with sort of, you know, a scientific basis for this. There's now research using this opportunity, dare I say that, as, as a, you know, an opportunity for research about how we can deliver neuropsychological services in this format. Um, but I think that one thing that's really changed about my, my current working day is the complete is the challenge of homeschooling so i'm sitting here having thrown technology and screens at my two lovely children aged 10 and 12 extra snacks and, and it's really hard because you know it's just again level upon level of um responsibility and headspace and focus and you know there are days where you know not much gets done work-wise but you know the kids are sort of you know chipping away with their 
with their education. Um, so it's, 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 it's challenging um, being very organised and very kind to myself and sometimes not beating myself up if I don't have a very productive day has been helpful. We'll, again, we'll get back to that kind of theme as we speak on. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're going to come on to, um, you know, more about mental health and, and well-being and some top tips for people that are watching this. Um, Dr. Benedict Smythe and I were talking last week about how the public support for the NHS has been, been particularly comforting and inspiring to him personally and to his colleagues. Have there been any moments which have stood out for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think clap for carers is the obvious one. I know the, the first week I was on the phone to my aunt and she said, are you going to do it? And I thought, oh, uh, I don't know. Well, I thought I would go out and see what happened. Um, and then I went out and I, I saw that there were lots of people there, but nobody was doing anything. And I really surprised myself by starting clapping. And then it was amazing. And then now it just, you know, I, have start, I haven't lived here for very long. And I'm looking over there because that's where I do my clapping out on the little bar. <laughs> Um, and it's just, it's fostered, fostered a really nice sense of, I suppose, indirect sense of community. Um, and um, I think it's a nice part of a routine as well, um, that it's happening weekly. And it just really, I think, demonstrates the really, really strong kind of care and respect and love and how much people value the NHS. And, you know, thinking, speaking from here in Britain, it's not something that we're necessarily known for, I think, being sort of very open about the things that we think are wonderful, not doesn't fit in with a sort of stiff upper lip um, stereotype. So I have really loved seeing that and being part of it. Bonnie Kay? Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, you know, Clap for Carers is quite special. Um, you know, you can see sometimes on social media, people may be, you know, questioning it. But I think that sort of when that wave comes through, of sort of the applause, and we, we we're having we're having bells, vivazellas, fireworks. You know, it's just it's it's quite something, and I mean, you know, there is that community cohesion. But I think it's I think that people do recognise what the NHS workers are are doing for us, and what you know what they're doing for for this country, and I guess you know health workers across the world. Um, but I think the other thing that's really stood out for me is you know sadly because we are you know here in the UK and across the world again you know, the health workers who are dying, and then to see online the tributes to the, those people who have lost their lives has been incredibly moving, you know, that sort of, you know, that their, their, their sacrifice and their, their you know, you know is, is acknowledged in a very, very moving way. Mm. Um, but I think also sort of, you know, the way that various industries are coming together to sort of actually contribute and sort of, you know, provide, um, you know, in this case of need, um, you know, whether it's PPE or masks or, you know, calls for something, you know, whether it's walkie-talkies, anything, things that come through that way. Mm. Well, we said we were going to come on to talk about uh, mental health and well-being and um, hopefully to offer some top tips and some advice uh, to people that are watching this. We're now entering our sixth week of lockdown, social distancing, and for some, of course, social isolation. Has anything struck you about how the world or various countries have been coping? Yes, I think um because of the nature of how the pandemic progressed we did get to learn about how other countries were responding to the big social changes that have been brought about and i suppose part of me was seeing particularly the mediterranean countries and, and their responses and seeing how socially connected people were man managing to um sort of continue to be i sort of was a bit um i wasn't sure that 
the UK would be able to follow in the same steps, really. And I, I kind of, um, I did wonder if um, we might not have similar videos of, um, of, of, of events like such as Clap for Carers. So I, I feel sort of, I don't usually say this, but I feel quite sort of proud of us as a, as a nation <laughs> forum with no other connotations um, for, for being able to do that, to be, for being, for, to be open about our um, emotional experiences and also talking to people, uh, to each other about our mental well-being isn't something that a lot of people find easy and I've been really impressed and think it's really important that people are speaking to each other about the kind of social and mental health impacts. Um, yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, I travel a lot, um, as you both know, or, or normally when we're not in a lockdown because of a global pandemic. And, um, you know, every time generally that I travel abroad, I come back so grateful for the NHS and for our health and social care industries. And, and you know, um, I think we forget sometimes how very fortunate we are. Bonnie Kate. Um, I think, I mean, I, I agree. It's that sort of idea that, um, you know, people are keeping an eye out for each other. And I think that it's, a, I think, most notable sort of at a really sort of um, community level. And this might be whether, you know, you check on your neighbours. I think we all know our neighbours a little bit more now. You know, what do they need? Do they, you know, I'm getting a grocery delivery. Is there anything you need? That, that sort of thing. And then it sort of spreads, spreads up, whether it's sort of, you know, providing for a local food bank or looking, you know, the, the huge call out for sort of the huge response for NHS volunteers, for example. I just get this sort of sense that people are sort of, you know, keeping an eye out for each other and maybe thinking of people um, a little, you know, close to them a little bit more who's, you know, who's in the neighbourhood. Um, I've also been really struck by how creative people are and sort of, you know, driven by this need to... To, to have joy and to have and, and happiness and to connect with other people. So we've all seen sort of the, um, you know, the, the wonderful, whether it's a TikTok, TikTok meme or sort of, you know, a, a, an online choir or a family singing something from Les Mis. It's just been really, you know, amazing that the, the creative sort of, you know, um, in, uh, output that's, that's being created. Um, but I think the other thing um, that, that I'm also noticing is that, you know, particularly here in the UK, as we're sort of, you know, beginning to consider what it's going to be like to move out of lockdown, is that, you know, I think, I think that people are very anxious and very worried still, and that can sometimes translate to um, suspicion or a bit of um, frustration to uh, people as you walk past the street. I mean, we're told to sort of keep our two metres, but when you see someone coming, approaching you, you might sort of thank them for sort of standing back as you pass. But there's still that anxiety of actually like, but, but you know, or suspicion, don't get too close because I'm not sure, you know, if, what your health is like or what the situation is. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how we move from that, you must stay away from people back to what is a very natural sort of, you know, state for us to be, to be close to other people. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, I yeah, I'm I can't wait to get on the tube again in London and just see how people <laughs> deal with that, right? Yeah. I, I, I can I can I can hold off getting on the tube for a bit longer. <laughs> um is is there any current research being undertaken looking at the impact of social distancing and lockdown on the general public at the moment? Yes, I think there's loads. Actually, I mean, I found it really helpful on to, to be keeping up to uh, keeping abreast of all of this research that's um, uh, uh, been generated incredibly quickly um, through social media. Um, so there was a big paper published in the Lancet Psychiatry just I think last week, 
reporting results from surveys of I think more than 2,000 people with mental health conditions and from the general population to try and establish what the research priorities are from a mental health and well-being perspective. Um, so that I think will be very influential then in, um, in later funding schemes that are set up, which will be obviously required in order to do good, re good high quality research in this area. Um, and also I've been alerted to lots of different research studies um, possibly well, some of them quite large and some of them quite small that you can actually participate in very easily online. So I'm um, I'm taking part in one study that sends an, a link through every week via email and asks you to take one day from the last one working day or weekday from the last week and kind of um, say how much time you spent in various different activities and then fill in various questionnaires about your kind of mood and anxiety and well-being more broadly and about what your perceptions are about kind of our, the country and the and the world and the government's ability to cope with the pandemic um, and so that's quite an interesting experience I think really it helps me to kind of reflect on how things are going for me personally but I also I quite like doing it because it feels like I'm making a bit of a contribution to the research efforts um, I think it's quite a good way that anybody can participate really in these studies. Oh that sounds great. Well as we all know coronavirus, coronavirus has affected all aspects of our lives and the constant news about the pandemic can feel never-ending certainly for me uh, sometimes. Not only is it impacting on our physical health but it's also taking its toll I think on some people's mental health. Um, staying at home, social distancing and self-isolating of course are crucial in stopping the spread of COVID-19 but they do affect us psychologically and I wanted to ask you why does that happen and what are the types of things that people might notice that might suggest that they're experiencing stress or anxiety during this time, Bonnie Cates? Okay. I mean, I think that sort of, you know, we've all been thrust into these circumstances which uh, seem to be beyond our control and it's changed significantly, significantly so many different facets of our life. So, you know, many of us um, are indeed living with a lot of uncertainty about sort of whether it be our health, our, our work, our finances, relationships, you know, so many changes on, on, on such a significant level. Um, so I think that sort of, you know, I think what's also interesting to notice is that in the midst of this, here we're being thrust into this really stressful situation, mm -hmm. and yet many of the, the means or the usual, our usual techniques for managing stress, whether, you know, we're aware of that or not, have been taken away from us. Whether we're sort of limited in sort of you know the journeys we can make outdoors, limited in in who we can actually see, um, you know the you know so we're stressed, but yet we, yet we may not be able to know what to do with that. Um, but I think that's you know, and I think that there's you know it has been suggested as well that we're almost grieving for for the loss of our past lives um, on, on on some level, um, and you know I think that it is going to be really interesting to to look to the research that's coming out of this and the social isolation and the social distancing um, to sort of see how um, we can manage things going forward. Um, because I, you know, I, I think that there's my delivery. I think that um, you know, inherently we are social creatures and to have that, that, that connection with someone being taken away quite rapidly and, and sort of you know, not, we don't know when that opportunity connect is going to return, I think is inherently stressful for us, even, even those who, who do appreciate their own company or who, who tend towards being more introverted. So I think that, you know, again, many of us might be able to recognise some of, you know, these sort of signs and symptoms of being stressed mm -hmm. and anxious. Um, we might be demonstrating these 
across the hour, across the day, across the weeks. So, you know, we might be more irritable, snappy, you know, tend to sort of fly off the handle and be really intolerant of anything that's, inter you know, interrupts us or, you know, when things aren't going our way. Um, increased arguments, um, yelling at, at those we love and those who are suddenly within our, you know, the confines of our environment where we may not be able to, to get away from these situations or these people if we're finding them um, irritating or, or, or more annoying because our levels of stress are already heightened. I mean, I think that, you know, um, people may experience difficulty sleeping. Um, they may also then conversely feel more tired over and above any um, difficulty sleeping. People might find that they are quite lethargic and have no energy, or they might actually be quite restless and unable to sit still. And I think importantly, you know, along with heightened stress and anxiety, many people might be finding it very hard to concentrate and hard to focus and feel quite absent-minded. Um, you know, it's been interesting to hear just these anecdotal reports of people who have maybe more time or, you know, um, less, you know, more, more opportunity within their day to read a book, but yet are unable to sort of pick up and really sort of engage in, in something like that. Um, and so, you know, if we have difficulty focusing, people might also find that it's, it's, hard, it's harder to remember things. And I think that these are sort of, you know, consequences of increased stress and anxiety. Mm. We, we didn't talk about this when we chatted beforehand, but I just wondered what, what you thought. Do, do you think that those things can be magnified for people who are uh, post-encephalitis? I mean, I, I would say yes, because, you know, it's almost whether, say, if someone has cognitive changes following encephalitis, where it's, they may have a tendency because of the long-term effects, to be more easily overwhelmed by information. So it might be harder for them to actually sort of almost process information anyway. And then all of this, this barrage of news or the, you know, the intrusive worrying thoughts about family, health, friends that we've been talking about almost sort of makes it just too much of an information overload. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, again, the problems with focus, the problems with you know, energy and fatigue all have this knock-on effect. So, I mean, um, and I, you know, again, we might come back to this later. If an individual following encephalitis pre-COVID-19 had these difficulties, all the more reason now to rely on sort of, you know, whether it's memory strategies, organisational strategies, because your already vulnerable memory thinking concentration systems are going to be just so much more under threat and under pressure because of the situation we find, you, know, you find yourself in. I'm guessing some people, you know, actually just might find reassurance in your words there, knowing that actually, you know, in these abnormal times, that would be a normal um, response. Um, but as you alluded to, you know, not only is the threat of a, a new virus scary, many people are facing is, uh, many of the things that you described, these stressful life, challenge, uh, life challenges. Lots of people who were working in pubs and restaurants or, or who were self-employed have lost their jobs or had their incomes cut, for example. I think social distancing and self-isolation means avoiding, as you said, seeing family and friends. And many people, of course, are, are worried about vulnerable loved ones that they're not able to see in person. And of course, for the millions of people for whom it's been recommended that they stay indoors entirely for three months as part of the shielding initiatives around the world, restrictions can feel even more extreme. Um, what type of behaviours, activities and ways of being can people adopt to strengthen and improve their mental health and well-being at this time? 
Well, I think there's lot there's lots in there, so I'll try and please do prompt me if I kind of go off track or try or, or omit something that's important. But I think hearing what you've said, it's really important to think about what our needs are. And if you're in a situation where you have got a lot of money worries or, you know, you're not sure if you can pay your rent, etc., then it's really important to obviously try and make sure that you can access all of the support that is available from, you know, various government and other initiatives, um, because that is a really, you know, very gen genuine um, and realistic concern and cause for anxiety. And if you don't have those things sorted out, it's going to be, you know, much more difficult to keep feeling kind of mentally well. And, you know, doing some mindfulness meditation isn't necessarily going to help you overcome those really serious practical problems. So I think that's the sort of first thing. And I think then the other strategies that I would think about and sort of approaches to managing this really difficult situation really stem from the kind of the causes that Bonnie Kate was describing. So um, I think everybody listening to this will be aware um, that we're all a lot of us are feeling much more socially disconnected than we usually would do but there's been a huge surge of kind of interest and use in alternative ways of keeping socially connected this idea about being physically distanced rather than socially distanced um so you know this podcast that we're on now is one example of that um i feel like i've got lots better at using well, i hope i have um technologies like this in meetings and feeling more sort of comfortable with it and that um, works well not just for work but also for um, social relationships so I know that um, uh, I have a group of friends from school and I've had several video chats with them over the last kind of month and we've literally never done that before so um, but it's been really lovely to kind of re-establish some of those connections um, and I think that there are other lots of really creative ways I think Bonnie Kate was alluding to this before or mentioned this before as well things like kind of um, maybe more novel uses of um, social media and technology to keep socially connected things like these online choirs and um, I've heard about people um, moving book groups that they're normally in online um, and people who've kind of moved away from like maybe used to be in a group but then dropped out because they moved away gone back into some of those groups which is a really nice thing I watched a film online with my aunt and uncle in Devon last week using this really cool app um, which sounds funny because it's you know it's quite a solitary thing in some ways to watch a film but it was really nice to see them on the little sort of panel at the bottom of the screen and then we had a bit of a chat online afterwards so there are all of these new sort of options for keeping socially connected and I think it's really important to prioritize that because like Bonnie Kate said we're social creatures and also a lot of kind of who we are our, our sense of identity is um, bound up in the groups that we're part of so I think making it taking every sort of opportunity to maintain those links is really really important it's also um, important to try and um, keep a routine if you can so to really focus on making sure that you get enough sleep and that you're eating well getting exercise going out when you can um, and, and I think as I mentioned oh and definitely as Bonnie Kate mentioned if you use memory strategies and sort of strategies to help you plan and organize your day really really important even if your days look quite different to keep using those strategies um, and maybe even if you don't use those strategies um, usually then it's quite a good um, thing to do to start using them like I have um, or I've used them more intensively um, than, I, than I used to because there's so much uncertainty and it's so easy to kind of get 
um, caught up in you know reading the news endlessly or listening to the radio and seeking out more and more information a lot of time can go by and then you kind of realize that actually you're maybe not in the right place to go to sleep you're too sort of wound up so really trying to be planful about what we do the activities that fill our days in order to sort of um, keep keep a good balance of activities and I'd say as well, it's important to try to be sort of curious about this situation um, and its impact on yourself. So not just about the sort of broader picture, but thinking about, you know, noticing if you start to feel anxious, trying to identify why that might be, trying not to sort of worry too much about it, but take a bit of a kind of outside perspective and think, what's, what's the cause of this? Like, is there anything that I might be able to do differently to feel you know, to, to, to feel a bit better, to kind of let go of some of this anxiety? Would it help to speak to somebody else? What might they say about how I'm feeling? And just keep an open mind and thinking about if you, for example, have a really bad day and you don't achieve much or you kind of you know, argue with the people that you're um, locked down with, then trying to not let that impact too much on the following days, but think, well, maybe I've learned, I'll try and learn from that and try and do things a bit differently in the future. So kind of taking a bit of an experimental approach because nobody knows the sort of right answers for each specific person. It's about thinking about the kind of general principles that we know um, are important in maintaining well being and in causing distress and trying to sort of tweak those things to our advantage. That sounds great. Well, what are your thoughts, Bonnie Cates? Well, um, you know, I agree with um, the strategies that Jess has suggested. I think she's been, you know, quite a comprehensive description of what, what is possible to do. Um, but, I, but I would also emphasise just the need to be, I mean, I think just alluded to this, the need to be kind to yourself. I mean, this is a really difficult situation. It's very challenging. And there will be days and times or hours when, when it's a struggle. Um, and so, I, you know, would, as much as possible, and I appreciate it may be easier said than done, but to not be too harsh on yourself if there are days when you struggle to get anything done, when you have an argument or fall out with your partner or your son or, or whoever it might be. Um, but I think that it, it is also important to... to recognize if if that struggle continues and to actually then sort of look to avenues for professional help i mean you know as we've both been saying you know many psychologists therapists and mental health professionals are now working online so that those services that professional support will be available should, should you need it um, you know just i guess following on from some of the strategies that, that jess mentioned um, you know this idea of identifying what what you do enjoy mm -hmm. You know what what well, what you are able to do within the confines of this situation and uh, you know almost sort of have them as a uh, either plan when you're going to do them throughout your day or have a list or sort of you know a pool of those activities or resources so that if you are having a particularly bad day if you are feeling particularly stressed or anxious that's when you can can turn to them almost you know in case of stress break glass and pat the dog or you know, hug the kids, or turn some music up and sort of you know dance to your fa your favourite tune, that sort of thing. So just to sort of, it's not going to change the threats and the situations in the long term, but just to maybe release some of that pressure actually at that time in the moment. Um, you know, similarly, you know, and it might be helpful for some people as you know that that idea of just being sort of saying about being curious and sort of stopping to think. Some people might find it's useful to even write down what their worries are and to sort of get it out in that way. 
and then return to that at a later time when maybe that emotional sting has been taken out of the situation to then adopt maybe a problem solving approach to what those worries are, whether that be by yourself, to reach out with friends or family, or again, you know, to seek some sort of professional support. Um, I think that all of these things can be helpful. Um, you know, I think that things like, uh, or activities, I should say, like exercise um, can be also really useful. And people do find that, um, you know, meditation, mindfulness meditation can also be useful. Um, and, you know, with regular practice, even in a very difficult situation, allowing that sort of, you know, literal headspace um, can, can be really helpful. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you. Um, Jess uh, mentioned this when she was talking, um, and I think I agree, you know, it can be really hard to escape this constant, or what can feel like a constant barrage of, of bad news in the media, um, which of course can add to people's feelings of stress and anxiety. In addition, we've all had to migrate, as you spoke about, Bonnie Kate, we've all had to migrate uh, to spend a lot more time online, um, and some of that will undoubtedly be on social media. Um, do you have any uh, top tips for people really um, about managing themselves online uh, to help them reduce any burden um, or anxieties that they might be feeling? Um, I think that, you know, I, I agree, you know, it is really important to ration the amount of time that you spend online and even pre-COVID-19, pre, um, but I think even more so because there is this sort of constant flood of, of bad news and distractions. Um, and again, we, 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 many of us, most of us, don't have access to our usual forms of entertainment and recreation, but we've got a tablet in front of us and off, and off we go. Um, but I think that we, you know, it is important for our mental health to be aware of the negative impact of, of social, um, not, not just social media, of, of, of being online um, and, and to just allow time to stop and think about how it makes us feel, how does that then make us behave? Um, so it might be helpful to uh, allocate certain times of the day. For example, if you want to keep, keep up, to, um, up to date with the news, select a certain time of the day when you're going to do that. And I would recommend, um, and this is anecdotal personal experience, you don't do that just as you're about to go to sleep. Because, you know, if we're going to be sort of scrolling through or checking the news, that can then stimulate sort of... Um, um, lots of negative um, thoughts, which then can heighten our arousal and make us anxious and cause sleeping difficulties, which can have knock-on effect from there. Um, so, you know, again, the, on, you know, the usual guidelines apl apply for, you know, online use, um, not just sort of allocating, okay, I'm going to read the news in the middle of the day, but be aware of sort of, you know, scrolling through your social media into the early hours of the morning. That idea of sort of, you know, reducing your use of tablets and phone with not just the blue light, but it's this stimulating news that you're getting through those devices, which can have the knock-on effect of increasing your anxiety and causing um, a negative impact on sleep. Um, you know, we spoke before about, you know, th I think the real importance of finding those activities that give you enjoyment and that sort of counteract the stress that distract you. And I think that this is, you know, finding activities that are not uh, technology-based and, and doing more of those. So whether it's, you know, listening to music, cooking, um, a board game, um, reading, you know, exercise, these sorts of things. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> well, not happy, happy to say, but 
perplexed, but I think that there's almost in Australia at the moment, sort of a jigsaw competition, everyone seems to be doing jigsaws. So that idea, and I love the idea of doing a jigsaw if I you know, find the space, you know, because you think it's again quite a meditative, but you know, challenging and rewarding thing to do. But it's finding, it's finding other activities that are offline and just knowing when it's time to step offline and, 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 do, and do something else. I love a jigsaw. Um, Jess, have you got anything you want to add to that? I'd add that I put a jigsaw on my birthday list um, last week. Well, I'm expecting to um, have one arrive anytime. And also, I'm afraid that I, there must have been some delivery for me as well, because I've been distracted in what I'm sure was Bonnie Kate's very comprehensive answer by my phone ringing and both sets of doorbells ringing. So I think I will um, not add anything else onto that and trust that you've covered it well. <laughs> Um, just, uh, just one thing, I mean, just sort of, dare I say, um, that I think we'd spoken about prior to today is that whilst, um, you know, I think that we spoke and I spoke as, as well before about um, the creativity that's coming out online. So whilst, you know, it is very easy to slip into sort of the bad, the bad news stories, I think, you know, there is some really good content out there online. And I think it's a big call out to John, John Krasinski in Some Good News, which is just, you know, I think as Jess, as you, as you mentioned, you know, the challenge to not happy cry at least once, if not twice, during during each episode. It's quite special. And where can people find that? Is that on YouTube? Or? It's on YouTube, and it's some good news. So he's an actor, he uh, actor and director, um, and it's it's really it's really worthwhile. He, he he basically he's I think my understanding is he started off by saying, look, there's lots of bad news out there. Send me your good news stories, and people across the world are flooding in, and he's got this wonderful sort of compilation of that. Well, that sounds amazing. I'm going to check that out. Um, certainly, uh, we've seen um, demand for our services skyrocket in the early weeks um, of COVID-19. My team were reporting 113% increased demand on our support service, which is our primary service for people that have been affected by the condition and, and family members. Um, so that's been up and down, but I'm told now the, the mean average every week is, is still a, a huge 67% uh, average increase. Uh, for us. Uh, we've had calls from people who are struggling um, with feelings of isolation and um, I think the team have put together quite a, a number of resources that I just wanted to share for a second for people. So they've got weekly virtual gatherings on which people can um, access via most of our social media and if people aren't sure they can still give the team a ring or chat to us online and we can tell them how to join in with those things and they've also reintroduced our, our award-winning brain walk app that we normally reserve for World Encephalitis Day but the team have relaunched it um, so that people can be um, uh, getting active um, uh, and but also communicating uh, with each other in the the forum there so so that's another opportunity for people to connect and they've also launched um, a new uh, community support forum for peer-to-peer -peer support uh, called Health Unlocked so if people want to um, explore any of those kind of innovative digital things that the Encephalitis Society have done um, they can do that by going to our website um, which is encephalitis.info um, but one thing we, we were wondering about um, I think we're expecting um, that the strain on carers will increase as well um, mainly because uh, they haven't uh, got the respite that they normally would um, have access to so is there anything that you'd suggest to carers who are in a situation uh, where they're living uh, with someone who, who needs support in that in that kind of caring 
environment. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I suppose first to say how really good it is to hear about all of the services that you're offering at the Encephalitis Society and you know, always available to people affected themselves and families. Um, and to say that it's just such a it must be such a difficult situation it is really um, challenging for carers at this particular time without that same respite with you know, interruptions for services or not being able to um, go out and do the things that we usually can so it's to acknowledge that it is a difficult situation and there's certainly nothing um, sort of unusual to be worried about if you as a carer are feeling like you're really struggling and like it's you know, we'd be expecting people to feel, you know, more, more gloomy more often, worried, feeling, you know, more frustrated. These are all quite normal reactions to have to this really difficult situation. Um, and I think it's a little bit of a cliche in some, in some respects, and it's really certainly much more difficult to do than to say. But the old adage a bit about needing to put on your own oxygen mask before trying to help others is really, really important. If you yourself are you know, burned out and at the end of your tether, you're not going to be able to provide the support in the way that you would want it to be doing. So trying to put yourself first and to make sure that your sort of needs are met and that you do carve out time for yourself in, in whatever way that might be. And it might be in a reduced way relative to normal, but it is really important to try to prioritise those things and to make use of the supports that are available. I mean, Hopefully it won't be too much longer before some of the more re the regular services come back into operation. And I would hope that those things would be prioritized, you know, without whilst containing um, um, kind of spread of the disease. Um, so you've really nicely outlined the supports that are available from the society. Um, there are also, you know, there's Carers UK that I think have a lot of resources as well. And we can maybe put a link to some of their, their, their guidance um, um, with this um that's specific to that caring role and then also i suppose to say that those things are really really different there are uh, many nhs services are continuing to operate um so if there is a service that you are linked in with don't necessarily assume that they're not that they're not running or able to provide any support it might be the case that they're offering um uh remote support or that they're you know it's worth making contact with them to ask what's available to you and i suppose keeping in mind that knowledge that this will end it feels like it's going on for a long time but there are obviously um, signs that um the situation is improving and due to the work of the amazing scientists that are working to develop treatments and vaccine things that this won't this won't go on forever um, and i suppose the same um advice that we were talking about in relation to maintaining well-being, like you know, making sure that your kind of routine is, um, uh, is maintained and that you're keeping um, in touch with the people who can provide you even emo just emotional support um, are really important for carers as well. That sounds great. Of course, I'm, I'm mindful also as well that some of our viewers might be uh, professionals, they might be frontline staff. Um, have you got any advice for them? What can they do uh, to cope with the stresses and trauma of frontline work? Well, I mean, I think that we can agree that frontline staff will be experiencing a, a unique set of stresses, um, you know, feelings of grief, burning out, you know, worrying about their own health, feeling overwhelmed, feeling quite hopeless in sort of the individuals they're taking care of. Um, and I think it's also really important to consider that many of these frontline staff may have not just these 
needs arising from the from the acute stress, but you know maybe we can see we, we could anticipate needs psychological needs further down the track um, as sort of this as as literally as this wave passes. So I think that sort of you know some of the strategies well a lot of the strategies we've talked about today can also apply to um, people who are working as frontline staff. But I understand, for example, within the NHS in the UK that many of the teams will have um, details of the resources that are available for, for their staff. Um, so that, you know, if you are feeling overwhelmed or stressed, you know, go to your team manager, um, you know, the social work department, psychology to find out sort of what is available. And this might be in the form of an individual who can provide you with um, space to talk or support. And I understand that there are other resources that are available, whether this be via telephone support, there are many apps that are available. Um, so, you know, if people are sort of exhausted and, and, and time pressured, um, it may be something that there are different ways to ac actually access that support um, at that time. But I think that also sort of, you know, keep an awareness of sort of, you know, what, what your longer term supports might need. Um, so, you know, I think that it's sort of, you know, again, take, you know, taking, taking care of yourself, but, you know, and, and asking for help, because it's my understanding that there are sort of some good resources that are there to help um, people who are taking care of our loved ones. Mm. So I think what I take away uh, from that a bit is that, that no, no matter where staff might be in the world, that they, they must reach out and take advantages um, of the, the, you know, the many uh, things that are available to them from, the, you know, their varying um, health healthcare sector backgrounds, you know, and that, that I guess some, some of that might also be um, from some of the organisations that people are registered with, you know, um, like the, um, psychological societies or occupational therapists um, college of nurses for example right you know, these, so, these sorts of things yeah yeah no agreed um well we're coming um towards the a little bit towards the end of our podcast um so just want to ask you both i think um put you on the spot um, what would your top three recommendations then be to people generally for them to maintain their mental health and well-being during this time um, so I think, or oh, I'll probably choose three and then decide, oh no, that one, was, that one should have been number four and I've missed one, but I'll try and pin my thoughts down. So I think the most important one is to stay socially connected. Um, I'd say try and stay or be active, you know, get out for your daily exercise when you can, enjoy the spring springing, um, and be creative. Think if there are things that you can't do that you um, usually would to help yourself feel better, then think about ways that you can get similar effects from um, slightly different approaches. Um, I would say, you know, similar, um, you know, to stay active and, and, and keep moving in whatever shape or form that is for you. Um, to connect with others, say, to say hello in the street or to sort of, you know, get on the phone or, you know, Zoom sessions. But I think what's really important is, is to be kind to yourself. This is a really difficult situation. Yeah, be kind. That sounds great. Um, and I did, I forgot to mention earlier as well for people um, that the Brainwalk app, as much as, as its title um, suggests it's all about uh, walking and you both mentioned about um, staying active. We also, the team went, were at great pains to include um, lots of games that people can play on there. So they were able to, we can embrace people as well who, who find it difficult to stay active. So the games actually allow them to uh, 
convert their their game scores to footsteps so they can still participate along with everybody else in marathons or 10ks or whatever it might be that people are up to on the app so um so again um you know i don't want people listening to the podcast to think that you know if they can't run a 10k they can't get involved they absolutely can get involved um with the app um, but you've both, um, when we were talking earlier, you've both recommended a, a range of resources for people um, who might like to find out more about some of what we've been talking about. And we're going to add um, this list to the podcast in, in the text element of that. So thank you both um, for that. But Bonnie Kate, I can't let you go without asking about your mammoth fundraising event, cycling from London to Brighton in support of the Encephalitis Society on September the 13th. First of all, thank you very much from me and all of the team. Um, sounds like a very tough challenge, but I take it you've been putting in the practice? Well, I've started, I dare say, I've got a few months yet to reach peak, peak fitness and figure out actually how many kilometres 55 miles actually <laughs> is. Um, but yeah, I mean, cycling at the moment is my lifeline. Um, it's really good to get out and just have a taste, a, a little taste of freedom as I pootle around the neighbourhood. Um, and I live in North London, so I've got some pretty severe hills to practice um, my, my, you know, my journey into Brighton. So yeah, it's, I'm looking forward to it. It's a great challenge for me and it's supporting uh, your fantastic charity. Oh, well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, now more than ever, we're grateful. We've lost over 80 uh, fundraising events, which is around about a third of our income uh, due to the COVID pandemic. Um, and, after, you know, that, that's a big hit, I guess, for us to, to take. So we're, we're ever more grateful for people signing up to things like this um, at the moment. Um, but where can people go to support your fundraiser, Bonnie Kate? Well, um, I've set up a Just Giving page. So if you go to, and I... If you, if you Google Just Giving, it'll come up. And then if you can either uh, plug in my name, which is Bonnie Kate Dewar, or Encephalitis Society, and then it will come up with my picture of my lovely bike saying cycling for Encephalitis Society. And um, please give um, whatever you're able to do. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you know, for people that want to support us as well, you can simply go to encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Or if you fancy being a, a hero or heroine like Bonnie Kate, then you can get involved with fundraising that's taking place that you can do from, from your own uh, homes. You don't have to be uh, out and about and doing things. So just visit in that case encephalitis.info forward slash do your own thing. Um, a rather funky name, obviously, uh, by my team. But um, as we bring this podcast to a close, um, is there anything else that either of you would like to say? Yeah, I'd just like to send my very best wishes, I suppose, to the people watching this podcast. Um, we'll, we'll all struggle on different days and you know, different ways at the, in this um, really difficult time. And so, yeah, I'll send you my very best wishes. Um, and we just you know, hope you're able to look after yourselves as well as you can. And I'd like to say thank you to Ava and her amazing team for all of the brilliant work that they're doing for this fantastic society. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I can just e echo those um, thanks, Ava, for sort of, you know, I know I appreciate that this is really hard time for the charity and yet so important, particularly at this time. So, you know, we wish you all the best and, and good health and, and the resilience to get through this. And really it is just sort of, you know, we're all opening our emails or our phone calls or our messages with, I hope you're well. And I hope the people who are watching this, that you stay well and you stay healthy, both you and your, and your loved ones. 
Well, thank you so much, guys. Look, we've co covered an awful lot of questions there. We're deeply grateful um, to you both for taking the time out to do this podcast with us. Um, on behalf of all of our members, please accept our grateful thanks um, for all that you do, along with the rest of our scientific advisors. We also want to finish by reminding any viewers that the Encephalitis Society services currently remain unaffected by this recent outbreak. So if people need any kind of support or information, then our teams remain at your service. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online. Um, and most of all, as Bonnie, Kate and, and Jess said, you know, please stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. Thank you.